into slavery. Uh, they sell him to some Midianite and uh, uh, Ishmaelite traders who are making their way uh, probably from Syria, maybe even from Mesopotamia, and they're making their way to Egypt. They don't care where they're going. They just get 20 pieces of silver for Joseph, and Joseph ends up now uh, in Egypt, very, very far away from home, very, very far away from the dreams that God has given to him and uh, his lot in life. He goes from being the favored son uh, in the family, one who is receiving revelation from God, to really overnight he becomes a slave in a foreign land. And we pick things up in uh, verse 1 of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So they take him down into Egypt, and uh, here you look at this. I mean, we look at him as one of the uh, really great heroes of the faith, really, in, in the Bible. Joseph, uh, nothing specifically spoken of him in terms of, of sin in his life and deliberate wrongdoing. We know he wasn't sinless. But he's really quite a guy, uh, along with Daniel in the Old Testament. And uh, he goes now uh, from his family, and he goes into Egypt. And you can imagine, he's, just, he's a slave in a slave market. So they're going to take off his shirt and show the muscles and the whole deal and who wants to buy him and for how much and all of that. And there's a guy by the name of Potiphar who is a member of Pharaoh's cabinet. So he's a very, very high government official. He looks at him and, and studies him a little bit and, and maybe interrogates him a little bit, thinks that Joseph is useful for him for some reason, and buys him as a slave at a slave market. Now, this is, uh, I think, a challenge uh, to us. How many of us, in terms of God's call upon our lives, he has a very high calling on Joseph's life, but how many of us, if it meant being sold uh, into slavery in Egypt, would put up with that in order to have God's call fulfilled in our lives? How many of us would be that surrendered to God, to His wisdom and His uh, process of preparation in our life for what it is that He's called us to, that we wouldn't bolt, I mean, that instant related uh, to things. And not only does Joseph not bolt away from what God has called him to, he is going to endure, you know, very, very much more uh, than, than this. God is free to spend our lives however He wants to. And He can spend as much time putting us wherever He wants to, and that's the way that it is. I look at my life, and I, I'm sure that most of you feel the same way. I would have thrown my life away ten times by now, apart from the Lord. The devil could have taken me out any one of a hundred ways. I mean, I would be you, just worthless in, in, in terms of this being under my control. And so when we come to the Lord and we give Him our lives, He cannot do any worse than we would do. He's always going to do a lot better than what we could do. But we've got to give Him time for what He has in mind to kind of surface. 
So Joseph has the dreams and all, and, and then now God is going to kind of prepare him for all of those dreams. Joseph is going to learn, as the old saying goes, uh, you've you, you got to go down in order to go up. And he's going to go up, and God's told him he's going to go up. He's going to go way up. But sometimes you've got to go way down in order to keep your head screwed on straight once he puts you way up. In other words, to stay under the control of, of the Holy Spirit. So... God's working it all together for good, but it's pretty hard for it to look like it's working together for good at the moment <laughs> for Joseph. I think. You think about that, Romans 8, 28, and uh, for those of us who know and we love the Lord, He's working all things together for good. I mean, how, how much does God have to keep track of every day? How many, how, many, how many things are all things just in one Christian's life? And then to take every one of these details just related to one Christian, work all of the circumstances, and he's going to work internationally on this guy's life. He's going to work in the, mo in the heart of the most powerful man in the world. But God is big. He's very, very powerful and sovereign. He can work everything together for good. But it takes some time to see that. So here he is. He's, he's taken down into Egypt, and then worse yet, he is sold as a slave there. And the Lord was with Joseph. And that's, that phrase is going to be repeated four times in this chapter. Verse 2, verse 3, again in verse 21, and again in verse 23. Over and over again, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And so things are very unfair. Everything is confusing right now in his life. But what he has going on inside of him is he has the sense of the Lord's favor upon his life. And one of the greatest things is you can be in a very unfair circumstance, what his brothers have done to him, and now sold as a slave and all of this. And as long as you know you're right with God, then you know the promises are going to come true. And it's a priceless thing. Sometimes I'll ask people when they're in a real crisis in their life might be a medical thing or some kind of a relational deal or just some big trial. Now, sometimes I'll ask myself, are you, are you sensing the Lord's presence in your life? Can you sense His, His strength and His power in your life? And, uh, and because that means so much to us at that time. Everything else can be just piled up against us. But if we know that He's with us, we're going to be okay so the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And so here he is in the house, and, and now not only a slave, but he is now a slave over the household of Potiphar. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And so Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and served him, and then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. And so it was from the time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessings of the Lord were on all that he had uh, yeah, in, in the house and in the field, everything. The, jo the, the favor that God had on Joseph's life just went out into every part of Potiphar's life. And thus Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread that he ate. That's something, isn't it? I mean, here, powerful people, uh, people with uh, very busy people, people with a lot of responsibility, they know how to spot talent. 
And this is a talent that's greater than natural talent. He, he recognizes that the Lord is on him. Everything that Joseph touches, it, it turns to gold. There's real favor on it. And, and so as Potiphar's watching this, he just keeps handing over more and more responsibility to Joseph until he's handled the whole responsibility for what he's all about over to this slave. And all he knows is the meal that's getting put in front of him three times a day. Now that's something. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing. Someone could be in Joseph's place and, and look at the circumstance that he's in and think, what in the world is this all about? But Joseph is destined to become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. What better place could God put him in preparation for that than to put him in Egypt and then put him overseeing all of the responsibilities of one of the cabinet members of Pharaoh. In other words, he is learning as he does all of this, he's learning how the Egyptians do business, how they organize, how they deal with things administratively, about their government, about their structure, about all kinds of things. They're going to be very important to him one day when Pharaoh says to him, in just 24 hours, everything changed in Joseph's life, and says, now except for the throne, except for the throne, you are the most powerful man in all of Egypt. So what does he do if he's a 17-year-old kid that the most that he's ever done is looked over a flock of a hundred goats, and now he's made the most powerful man in Egypt? That takes some preparation. And there's a preparation going on in his life. But I don't know that Joseph recognized it at that time, but God recognized it, and God's preparing him for the responsibility of what it is that, that's coming. And the beautiful thing here is that Joseph is faithful to God wherever God puts him. He could just look at that and say, well, they're gonna, they're not, you're not going to get much out of me, buddy. I come from a family over here and they did me wrong and all and you bought me as a slave and I'm no slave and I'll tell you something, you're going to have to whip me every day to get any work out of me. That's not the attitude that he took in there. He, he recognized that as a child of God, even though the whole circumstance is unfair, he's obviously not being paid well and, and mistreated in all, it is his responsibility to do what he's been called to do as unto the Lord. And then what happens? Pharaoh sees there's something special about this guy. This guy is, has a favor of, of God upon his life and adds more and more responsibility. Listen, our faithfulness to what God calls us to do in difficult circumstances, there, there, very often there is no paycheck in this life for it. Uh, we can be taken advantage of in, in different circumstances. But there's a paycheck on the other side of this life. And what we are learning in these different environments that God puts us in, and we know that we're in His will, even though it's hard, even though we're not being fairly paid or, or, or uh, treated in the situation, not all value is measured in terms of dollars and cents. A lot of value is measured in terms of the character that we're developing in that environment. And, and Jesus said concerning all of this, He who is faithful in what is least will also be faithful in what is much. In other words, our character is going to show up whether it's when we become the second most powerful person in Egypt 
or when we're in this particular position in Egypt. Character is character. Who we are is what we are wherever God puts us. And, and, and so here he is. Joseph doesn't look at it, and, and sometimes people look and say, well, you know, uh, once I get into the position that God's called me to and something that's worthy of me, you know, then I'll be faithful to God in that environment. It'll never happen. It'll never happen because we'll never develop the character that will allow God to then plug us into that place. Character development is something that doesn't end up on the pay stub or on the whatever kind of way that, that things are paid for in this world. But it's there and it's more valuable than money because it ties into what God has called us to do. And so here he is, the position, he keeps growing in it. And then, uh-oh, the end of verse 6, we're told here that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He's a very, very attractive 17-year-old young man. So he's got the body and he's got a cute face. He's a total package, right? So that's trouble on things. Now, this description of him, it reminds us of, way back in Genesis chapter 29, verse 17, the description of his mother. But Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. So he got, he got everything from mama, you know, in terms of, of all of her good looks and, and those kinds of things. So he's, he's very attractive, and it came to pass after these things... Uh, that his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, cast longing eyes on Joseph. So she is, finds him attractive, she lusts after him, and then she said to him, lie with me. So she has no gift for subtlety uh, at all on things. And uh, in that time, in Egypt's history, uh, the women were known... Egypt was a very, very sexually immoral environment, and the women were known for being sexually immoral also. And uh, so here's Joseph just going on about his own business and minding his own business. He's not looking to get involved with anyone or to be sexually immoral. That's excellent. But when you live in a sexually immoral nation, it's not just enough to not be looking for trouble. Uh, we have to be ready for trouble to come looking for us. And you don't have to be good looking for that to happen. I, I mean, the devil can make anyone look good uh, for, for that kind of, of, a, of a temptation and all. Now, I have no doubt that Potiphar's wife was a very attractive woman. Uh, these powerful men tarry, tend to marry up, okay? And uh, you look and say, how in the world did he get her? And uh, power, and uh, a lot of women are attracted to power. And, and so uh, these trophy wives and this kind of, of thing. I think also if she was, you know, just ugly as could be, uh, there's no temptation. Uh, Joseph just says, give me my robe back. I'm not leaving. I'm not in any danger. I don't need to run from you at all. Give me my robe and then I'm leaving. The end of the temptation. But he runs from the temptation because she represents a, a, uh, a temptation to him. So she just says, listen, I want you to, to lie with me. And uh, Joseph at this particular time, as I've said, is somewhere between 17 and 20 years old at this time. Now you stop and think. Don't think too hard. But stop and think about what kind of a temptation that is for a 17-year-old uh, boy who is 
very, very uh, far away from home in a foreign land. Now, I don't have to tell, I don't have to uh, tell a 17-year-old to think about that. <laughs> They're very well aware of the degree of that temptation. Uh, the rest of us have to try and remember a little bit uh, on that, but it's very, very strong. I wouldn't want to be 17 again for all the money in the world. The, the experts um, on these kinds of things, they study human sexuality and all of that. I, I don't know about those kind of people, but anyway, when they give me statistics that are useful for the sermon, I'll quote them. But, but they, they uh, estimate that in, in a human male, uh, between the ages of 17 and 20 is when the male sexual desire is at its greatest in all of life. So someone says, and I don't have to be careful. See, this is why we don't like, we like everybody to be 12 and above in the sermons, in the sanctuary. And, and so someone can look at that and say, well, what, what, what is this all about? Is this a, a sermon on human sexuality? What's the point on this? And the point behind all of it is that Joseph in this chapter is going to successfully resist this temptation to sin in the area of his greatest temptation and in doing so he offers everybody instruction on how to successfully resist their greatest temptation even if it's different than Joseph so it's a very very powerful thing that that's happening here notice how Joseph responds now to her uh, attempt to seduce him we're told in verse 8 but he refused her. So he just says no to her. He says no to the temptation. And I think that's a very, very important thing related to temptation, is to realize that as a child of God, we can say no to temptation. Remember, the Lord is with Joseph. Uh, we're in the same kind of a place uh, under the new covenant. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the power to say no to even the strongest uh, temptation to say yes to God and to say no to sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 11. Likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. I have a, a Christian friend, and he is one of the most godly men I know, and I know a lot of godly men. And I remember one day uh, hearing him say about temptation, I mean, you would look at him and think that he never had, uh, not only never had a bad thought or, a, 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 or anything like that, but that he was never ever tempted to sin. And I heard him say one day, the life of holiness means saying no to the flesh 10,000 times a day. That's the truth about it. That's the truth about it. Success and resisting temptation, it begins with a desire to say no to the world, the flesh, the devil, and a desire to say yes to God. And then to do that for it to become a discipline in my life where I just look at the things and say, okay, that's a no, that's a no, that's a yes, that's a yes, that's a no. So not everything is, is something 
that I have to act upon just because it's come before me. And that's one of the keys for Joseph standing here is first thing he did is he refused. Now notice in the rest of verse 8 and then into verse 9 he gives the reasons why. It's not just enough to say no. You've got to say no for a good reason. And he gives three good reasons for saying no to this temptation. So he said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. And the first thing that he does is he declares that it would be a sin for him to do this, not a, and it would be a sin against her husband. It would be a violation of her husband's trust that Potiphar had put in Joseph. And he just looks at it and says, that would be just a flat-out wrong thing to do to another human being. That wouldn't be right to do him to someone like that, and especially someone who's placed such trust in me. Now it also tells me, and I think this is very, very important, it also tells me that Joseph realized how far-reaching committing this sin would be. He looked at it immediately and said, the consequences of this temptation, if I were to give in to this sin and lie with you, this would not just affect you and me. The consequences of that sin would reach all over the place. And the very first place that it would reach into would be into your marriage and into this man who has trusted me in, in all. This would affect a lot more people than just you and me. And I think that that is one of the most important keys to resisting temptation as we watch it in Joseph's life. And that is that it is critical to think through in whatever area, one, two, three, four, five areas that you and I are most uh, vulnerable to related to temptation, the strongest temptations in our life, and that is to think ahead of time what will be the physical consequences of me committing this sin? How far-reaching will this sin go out? How will it affect my husband? How will it affect my wife? How will it affect my children? How will it affect my grandchildren? How will it affect my reputation? How will it affect my ability to earn a living? How will it affect God's reputation? And whether the sin is sexual or the, the sin is, is uh, lying or stealing or uh, defrauding uh, people or, or, you know, kind of white-collar crime or, or whatever that, that might be, to look at it and, and to think about, all of the people that I would be affecting and all that I would be throwing away for just a few minutes of carnal pleasure. And, and, and to just stop and think about that. See, and you just, it doesn't take any long and you just go, wow, in 48 hours, my whole life would be changed. And my family would be changed. That'd be something I'd have to wear for the rest of my life. I mean, my reputation for walking with the Lord and witness for Him and all, all that'd be gone so quickly. I've talked with men who've left their wives and committed adultery 
I've talked with men in my office through the years who after they've gone after this usually a younger woman and all of this and, and they come in and after sometimes 48 hours sometimes it, 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 they'll wait as long as a week but they will come back and they at that point in time would give their right arm literally to have their wife and their family back and they are weeping and they cannot believe what they have thrown away for this little thing that they did you know what that tells me when I see that it tells me they never thought it through ahead of time they never gave five minutes time to think through what will happen not only to you but everyone around you if you do this thing and I'll tell you, it's, it will it'll scare the living daylights out of you. It'll scare the sin out of you. And if you really stop and think it through, and we need to think it through in, in the temp, temptation. I never, when I read uh, Joseph here in this situation, I never get the sense that when she says, lie with me, that he is, for the first time in his life, trying to figure out what he would do in that kind of a circumstance. He, it's already a settled issue for him. So that when this temptation comes to him, it's not like, oh boy, what do I do now with this and what does the Bible say? It's a settled issue how he would deal with this kind of a temptation and all. And immediately he comes out and he says no, and he says no for good reason. If a person has a woman come up and you can change the circumstance however you want as it fits to your temptation and come up and offer herself in this way immediately right now this thing if I begin at that point in time to try and figure out what I'm going to do in that circumstance I'm in real trouble that needs to be something that's settled way ahead of time Whatever the, the dangerous temptation is in our life, that if this hits me, Lord, then by your grace, this is how I'm going to respond to it. And that gets settled every single morning. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And with that model prayer that Jesus gave to the disciples, there is the acknowledgement in the morning, I am heading out into a world that is going to tempt me. And, and the prayer is, Lord, don't allow the opportunity to sin and the desire to sin to coincide in this situation, Lord. And if it does, I commit here as the day begins to deal with all temptation your way. And it takes a daily commitment to do that. And, and so this, it, it, Joseph handles it by, you know, kind of counting the cost a little bit ahead of time. Sometimes when a person falls... In, in this kind of, of a temptation, and, but it's other temptations too. They'll, they'll say afterwards, I don't know what I was thinking. How could a person be so stupid? How could, how could I throw away all that I threw away, you know, for that little thing? I must have been out of my mind. And sometimes it's a spiritual warfare. And we need to be careful 
for how the devil works in this whole thing too. He not only can sometimes bring the temptation right in front of our face so strongly like this, but he starts to work long before it happens and he gets us to start to devalue the blessings that God has brought into our lives and overvalue sin or the world or what the world is into. And when a person hits that thing and they say, I can't believe that I threw all of that away for a crust of bread, there's the realization that the devil got in there and got everything out of whack, changed this, the price tags as they talk about. This was given a wrong value. This is really valuable, but it was put a five cent price tag on it. This is not valuable at all, and they put a $250,000 price tag on it, and he gets the whole thing backwards on us. And, and to just stop and, and to look and, and to assess with the Lord what is really valuable in life and not to allow the devil to, to do that. Notice the second reason that he gave for saying no to her is he said, how can I do this great wickedness? I love that word, wickedness. It, it does something inside of me. I don't love wickedness. I love the word wickedness. Because nobody uses the word anymore except God. And there should be things in this world that we consider to be wickedness. And I don't like how the world redefines and renames sin. I don't like the fact that adultery is now an affair. That sounds way too happy for what I know what affairs do. And, and all the, the way that everything kind of gets minimized for how the whole, whole thing works and, until nothing is viewed as wickedness anymore in the culture and there are things we ought to view as being wicked and he viewed doing this as not just sin as a great wickedness and I challenge myself and I challenge you to remove anything from our lives that lowers our standard from a biblical standard of what is good and right and what is wrong and what is wicked. Whatever comes into my eyes and into my ears and into my heart and into my brain and all, anything that lowers my standard for what is right and wrong and lowers my standard for what I define as being wicked to where God is saying something is wicked and I no longer consider it to be wicked, I'm set up for a fall. Because it was to Joseph, when she takes and offers, it's an affront to him. It wasn't like, well, wow, let me think about this for a second. I mean, it was just like, that's great wickedness. Three cheers for innocence. Three cheers for innocence. In the body of Christ. And in our hearts. And we ought to protect it. We ought to protect it in our lives. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 97, verse 10, You who love the Lord hate evil. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, actually in verse 2, Do not be conformed, Paul said, to this world. And to do that. 
The third reason that he refused, you notice there, is he said, how can I then do this great wickedness and sin against God? He said to do that would be to sin against God. And that might be the most important protection and deterrent of all, is to just stop day by day and just think about how good he has been to us. How good he's been to us. I remember hearing a pastor teach years ago. And he said from the pulpit, he said, I just want you to know. He said, I have never fallen. Not talking about sexual immorality. But he said, I have never fallen into a sin and committed a sin. Except that God warned me ahead of time about that issue. And he was just making a point on, on the thing is, God is guiltless in all of this. And God is. He's so faithful to warn us ahead of time. And it's so important just to stop and to think about how good he's been to us. What a father he's been to us. How he just blesses us every day in which we don't deserve to be blessed. Look what he's made our lives into. Look what he has caused us not to throw away that we would have otherwise thrown away if we hadn't come to know him. Look at the life that is ours. And Joseph just says, and look at the circumstance that Joseph is in. I mean, he could have really begun to feel sorry for himself, but he doesn't. And, and he looks and says, in light of how good God has been to me, I couldn't do that to his heart. And he realized that there weren't just other people involved in all of this, but God was involved in it, and it would hurt his heart. And that's, a, that's an interesting thing too, isn't it? We think readily about how uh, sin hurts us, how sin would hurt other people, but sin hurts the heart of God. It's a, it's a real relationship that he's engaged in, in in our lives. And for a relationship to have the kind of intimacy that he allows us to have with him, he makes himself vulnerable to being hurt in that relationship. And Joseph recognizes here, I don't want to hurt him after how good that God has been to me. And what that tells me is that Joseph loved God more than sin. And it tells me that Joseph's relationship with God was more important to him than anything that sin could, could offer him. Someone has said, and it's, it's so outstanding, it takes a passion to conquer a passion. It takes a passion to conquer a passion. It's a two-pronged protection. It isn't just enough to take and say no to all of the things that are wicked in our lives. We're going to love something in life. We're going to worship something with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. It isn't a matter of whether we're going to worship something to, on that level. It's a matter of what thing or what someone is going to receive that worship. So it isn't enough just to say no to all of those things. I have to take all of this and it needs to be directed toward the Lord. The relationship has to mean something to me. It takes a passion for God in, in order to conquer a passion for sin. It, one of the hardest things to sin against is love. Is to love. To sin against a person that loves us. 
And, and, that's, and, and, and that's one of the things that protects us in, in temptation, is the recognition that God loves me, and to do this would hurt his heart and, and all, and I have a passion for God that is greater than any love that I have for this sin. But that means developing a relationship with God that has that kind of, of a passion for God. And that's what Christianity is. It is a call into a personal relationship with God and one that ends up meaning more to us than anything else in this world. And that's a key protection. I think it is the key protection to standing in the midst of, of this kind of, of, a, of a temptation uh, to, to sin. I think it's worth noting that uh, Joseph here, as he has this temptation come his way to, to him and all, that he doesn't use the unfair treatment of his brothers, the unfairness of his imprisonment and being in Egypt and all of this stuff and, and all is an excuse to sin. Or he could just fall into like some kind of a, you know, self-pity on things and say, if this is as good as God takes care of people and if this is what my brothers think of me and if this is what and all of this and everything, then I'm just going to look out for myself in this whole deal and give in to a life of sin. He doesn't do it. Because to sin against God is to sin against God. And it's forbidden whether I'm in an easy circumstance or I'm in a hard circumstance. And Joseph stays faithful here. Whatever the, our background, whatever our circumstances, we have the power to obey God's Word. Now this woman is an interesting woman. She won't take no for an answer. That's all she's going to get from him. But, but she's, she is going to keep fishing. And so it was, she spoke to Joseph day by day. Lie with me, lie with me. But that he, uh, that he, as it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. So he starts to put some distance. And, All right, why don't you take the milk in the house today? I'm going to head over to the barn and, you know, to the South 40 and look at how the crops are doing out there and all. And he just does everything that he can uh, to steer clear of her, put as much physical distance as he can between her and, and, and between him. And he purposely structures his life uh, that way. And it's important for us to avoid, uh, you know, the environments where we would be prone to sin. And here he's got this woman that's after her, so he, he just does everything he can to stay away from her. And we need to stay away from environments where we would be tempted to sin. We talk about it once in a while. If I'm an alcoholic, I shouldn't go into a bar for a 7-Up. If I'm having trouble with covetousness and controlling my spending and, and I'm a debtor to all these people that I owe and all, I shouldn't be on every catalog list in, in the United States and internationally. Don't bring the temptation uh, close on, on things. And then finally, she just isn't going to take no for an answer. And it happened about this time. And Joseph went into the house to do his work. He's got to go in there to do the work. And none of the men of the house was inside. Uh-oh, this is a setup. So she catches him by his garment, by his robe, and, and says, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and ran outside. And so his response was to run. 
And there can be times where the temptation is so great, you leave everything behind and you just run in order to survive. One of the things that I like about this particular thing is, here is Joseph, a very godly young man. And I look at it and figure, if Joseph needed to run to stand in a circumstance, then there's no shame in running. When you ought to run, you ought to run. And, and when, when the temptation is right there, you, 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 the only thing you can do is just put a, a good healthy distance between you and the temptation. And so he takes and, and he just clears out, leaves behind whatever he's got to leave behind in, in order uh, to, to do that. And uh, sometimes we have to do that so we don't go over a line and then end up falling into the sin. I, I, I don't know how old in the Lord I was, but it had to be in the first year or two of my Christian life. And I, uh, you know, there was a ministry called Firefighters for Christ, and it still exists today, and it's a wonderful ministry. And they offered free audio tapes. You could just order them, and they didn't charge you. You could donate for them and that kind of thing. Still do that to this day. And I remember getting a hold of a series of tapes that they were offering by a gentleman by the name of Bob Vernon. And he was with LAPD, ultimately became, I think, the police chief of the Los Angeles Police Department. But he did a series on the, what was called the true masculine role. And it was really, really important to me in my Christian life. But he gave this illustration of temptation that just stuck with me through the years. And here's, here's what it was in terms of dealing with the temptation. He, and he used the illustration of a Coke machine or a vending machine, something like that. And, and he said, when you stand in front of a vending machine, and let's say it's a Coke for a dollar, and you got four quarters in your hand, he said, when you put the first quarter in the machine, you still have control over whether you're going to get a Coke out of it or not. Whether a Coke's going to come down that chute, down at the bottom, and now you've bought yourself a Coke. Because if you put that first quarter in and you don't want to go through with it, you just hit the coin return, quarter comes back and you clear out. He said, if you put the second quarter in, you still have the same control of the situation. You can still hit the coin return and get out. Same thing with the third quarter that you put in. You still have control over it. You haven't crossed the line, you know, of, of regret and, and all. You can hit the return, get the three quarters back. But he said, once you put that fourth quarter in that machine, you're going to get a Coke whether you want it or not. And the key is, is in every temptation, there is a line that once we allow ourselves to go over, there's nothing left but the crying. There's nothing left but just the guilt and the condemnation and kicking ourselves and I can't believe and how can God have anything to do with me again and crying out for forgiveness but feeling like you can't come to Him too soon because He's got to whoop you for a few days before you can and that whole thing. And, and so every one of us has a line that in, whatever, in the area of our temptations where once we cross that line... All control of the Holy Spirit in our lives is lost and now we are completely under the control of the temptation and we're going to run a thousand miles an hour toward the fulfillment of that temptation. And the key is to set my life up in such a way that I never find myself standing in front of a Coke machine with four quarters in my hands. 
And sin, especially sin that is habitual, that dominates a life, typically it has a pattern. It's committed around certain people, in certain environments, at certain times of the day or the night. There's a pattern to sin that, that dominates when it dominates a person's life. And the key is to look at that pattern and make sure that I set my life up in such a way that I never allow those three or four things to all come together because when they do, I never stand faithful for the Lord. And so what do you do? You, you set up, the, you give somebody, uh, uh, throw one quarter uh, off the Golden Gate Bridge. And you give one quarter to a guy that's heading to Topeka, Kansas. And you give one quarter to your wife and say, never ever let me see that quarter again. And you give the other one to grandma or your mom. And give her the same instruction. So that you can't, even if you tried, to bring all of that together in order to be tempted there in, in that circumstance. And, and, and so, and then if it crosses, begins to get crossing to that line where you realize, all right, I'm, not, I'm never successful here at this particular place, then the thing is, you just flat out run. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, as a young minister, great call on his life too. He said, flee youthful lusts. And Joseph and Paul recognize that sometimes it's necessary to run to protect ourselves from sin. To run while we are still under the control of the Holy Spirit in, in that circumstance. And so he runs, he leaves the coat behind. And so it was that when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, I mean, this is pretty embarrassing for her apparently, and had fled outside that she called to all of the men of the house and spoke to them saying, see, he, speaking of her husband, this is his fault, you know, he's brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. And, and she starts to play now on the staff's kind of uh, racial and national prejudice. This is what you get when you bring foreigners into the house. And, and this kind of, of a deal. And, and so here he is. He's brought him in. Everybody knows you don't do this kind of thing. You bring this immigrant slave in. And he comes in and he mocks us. And he came in to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I had lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. Not a peep from the staff. They knew Joseph. And they probably knew her. This is not, probably not her first attempt at this kind of thing. So she kept the garment with her. You ever had, you know, sometimes mom will keep, wait till your dad gets home. I'll tell him, oh man. So she keeps his garment, the robe with her, until his master came home. And then she spoke to Potiphar with words like these saying, the Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me, attempted to rape me. And so it happened. The only thing that saved me was when I lifted up my voice and I cried out that he fled, uh, he left his garment with me and he fled outside. And so this is the story that she tells. And of course it's the exact opposite of what happened. And so it was when his master, Potiphar, heard the words which his wife spoke to him saying, your servant did this to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. And then Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, 
a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. And so Potiphar comes and he imprisons Joseph, which tells me he didn't believe the accusation. If he believed the accusation in the way that Egypt was in those days, before the day was over, he would have been relieved of his head. I mean, attempted rape was a very, very serious charge in those days as much as it is today. And Potiphar would have just taken his head off. I'm convinced he didn't believe his wife at all on the situation. Probably not the first time that, uh, you know, uh, news of, of this tendency in her life had come to him. Otherwise, he would have killed uh, Joseph. But he's in a difficult kind of place because what's he going to do? Is he going to side with a Hebrew slave? You know, he can go out and buy another one. He's got this wife and he can't divorce her and publicly the mess that it would be and the whole thing. And so it was just a lot easier to get rid of the slave and continue with the appearances here with this wife. But I'll put him in prison and I won't kill him. And so what happens? The dreams are still alive. It's messier, it's harder, but he's still alive for the dreams that God has given to Joseph for those things to, to come uh, to, to pass. And uh, so he does, you know, what's kind of diplomatic in the situation, but I think he still had great respect, continued respect for Joseph and all of that. Now you put yourself in, in Joseph's place and, and hear uh, a very real and very difficult new trial starts for him because now he's not only sold into Egypt not only is he a slave in Potiphar's house but now he's been falsely accused of attempted uh, rape and uh, here he is he's completely innocent and he's accused of doing something that he would have never thought of doing so his name is mud his reputation is mud uh, the name of the Lord and the reputation of the Lord associated with him, it's all mud uh, for a while. And, and, and so that's the cloud that hangs over him at this time. So he's in prison. Hey, bub, what are you in here for? Well, you know, attempted rape, but I was really innocent. And yeah, right, we're all innocent, uh, you know, in, in here. And, and, but as he's in the prison... He trusts the Lord now to clear his name, fulfill the dreams that God had given to him. And one of the hardest trials, and he's facing one in, in the service of the Lord there, false accusations that are made. And false accusations are made all of the time in, in life. It's a reality. It's a reality of any calling that God has uh, upon your life. I don't know why people love to believe the worst about everyone, but they do. Maybe it's the culture. Surely it's the flesh and, and the devil and all. But here's the accusation against Joseph. And uh, those accusations would be believed for a long time before God would end up clearing his name. Never believe, never believe a scandalous report uh, against proven character, against known godly character. Cover your ear and know that there's another side, you know, to the whole thing. I'm not speaking about my life in, in any way, so don't think I'm dealing with some situation in, in the church. But this is, this is a reality of, of what, what happens. And I think that that here, maybe now, he heads into the greatest temptation of all for him. 
even greater than Potiphar's wife offering herself to him because here he has to, uh, the, the greater temptation that he faces is to throw away God's call upon his, his life and, and the greater temptation is greater because it's a subtler one and that is the temptation to become bitter against God for allowing this to happen, allowing me to get hammered. I get hammered by my brothers. I get hammered by Potiphar. I get hammered by Potiphar's wife. I get hammered now and now I'm in prison and all for all of this just simply being faithful to you. And, and I'll tell you, the devil can really use that self-pity uh, to make us bitter and then just bolt related to his call upon, upon our lives. And, uh, but... It isn't, God is still working in the circumstance, still working in the situation, and He's called to be faithful no matter what people do to His reputation. And we're called to do that too. And then just wait for God to, to take and clear our reputation. But here is, uh, all of this is, is going on. Notice what continues in His life. But the Lord was with Joseph. God just goes with them right into prison. Hey, buckaroo, how's this out? We're in this together. And he's just with them right there in the prison. Again, it's amazing what we can endure successfully when we realize I'm right with God. My name is Mud. All these accusations, my life is a shambles. It isn't within a million miles of what I thought it would be. I can't understand any of it in any direction I would look, except that I know that right now, tonight, I'm right with God. That's, more, that's a, the priceless thing in life, and that's what he had. And the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and he, the Lord, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. And the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So here is the head of the jail. He turns the whole jail over to Joseph. So Joseph's really going to get an education on how things operate among the haves and the have-nots in, in Egypt and, and all. And, and so here he is. I mean, and I, I personally am convinced that Potiphar put a good word in for him and said, listen, you know, I'm bringing a prisoner your way and my wife and I, uh, you know, she's just the tenth time and the whole deal. And he's, he's but I've got to do something and all. But this kid, uh, put fast track him for taking over the prison. Because Potiphar's position was over the prisons. So it would have been, that would have been his area. So I wouldn't be surprised if he just told him, keep an eye on this kid. You can put him in any environment and this kid's just going to shine because of, of what he's, he's made of, and then, boom, you know, it's all turned over to him, and off he goes, and the reason for it is God's supernatural anointing upon his life. God will rise up in his power and in his sovereignty, and he will not let anything be successful in derailing us from what he has called us to do and to be. He is going to work it all together for 
good. And so he does here as it, as it relates to Joseph's life. And it's true related to us. We won't go on to another chapter tonight because I, I just promised in my heart that we'd be under three hours tonight. And uh, so, uh, but I, I didn't want to hurry through this chapter because it's such an important temptation chapter. And let me just see. Are any of you ever tempted? Just a quick show. Hands and things. All right. Okay. Here's the heart. Anybody ever tempted like on a daily basis? Yeah, I knew it about this church. Well, why would he have us pray it every day except for the fact that it happens? I mean, it's real. It's where we live. And I wanted to take the time just to look at these things because they are practical things. If you have never, ever sat down and you look in your noggin right now where you sit, and you say, we have to be careful when we think we stand lest we fall. We can get surprised and think, okay, this is my greatest danger over here. And the devil hits me from the side. But for most of us, if we look and say, it'll be this area or that area, that he's got the greatest likelihood of, 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 of knocking me out on, on this thing. And if you have never stopped and taken five minutes or an hour to think through what would happen if you ever crossed that line? You need to do that. It's not just a sermon. We need to do that because of the culture that we live in. It's not enough for us just not to be out looking for sin. We have to be ready in this culture for sin to come looking for us and surface in an instant in all of its strength and then be ready to meet it in a way that looks like God. Well, if the worship team would come forward, 